Yep. Now you know. Now all of you know what you have to do for the next five years. Reread everything. Reread. 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 Every, <laughs> go back to the beginning. Every one of them. And you should start with Faulkner. <laughs> I'm not going to start with I would start with the Iliad. You turn one. Oh, you are such a good. I've been pondering this question of the violent bear it away. I don't know what bear it and away. I can't reconcile those and take it by force makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. But I'm intrigued by bear it away. Away where? And bear has all these different meanings. I mean, it seems to me like carry right. is maybe the best. Um, but the away part, I can't, I can't come up with the... That's a I good, mean, for that. Yeah. Anybody want to jump in on this? It's a, I mean, it's a good question. I, I agree with you too, Tracy, that I think take it by force makes it a little bit clear, but for me, it, it makes bear it away clear, you know, that, yeah. um, it's just another way of saying what take it by force that... Can anybody add a line to this to in answer to what Tracy's I, asking? I, I personally kind of like bear it away because it's it's sort of like someone you know you know like when you 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 bear something you're you're carrying something and if it's off it's often used in where somebody is carrying somebody else's burden and to me you know the the violent bear it away it, it's it's to me it's you know, we're all burdened by all of these conflicting things in our lives. And uh, typically when, in a lot of our readings, when, when a grace happens, it's usually preceded by some kind of violence. And what happens is immediately after the character witnesses that violence, they suddenly see the world in a different light. And so for me, the the violent come in and carry away or bear away all those things that are in our way, keeping us from seeing, you know, what's, what's real or what's true. And, you know, for me, that's, that's, and, and you, you know, I, I, I saw that several times in, in our, in our last reading. And that's sort of my interpretation of it is, some kind of violent act or some kind of violent person causes the individual to suddenly, you know, realize what was really there all along, but was just too hard for them to see. Yeah. I agree. Tracy, I would just add, I mean, you could add in parentheses, bear it away into freedom. Away just means out of that world, which is the occasion for violence. So it's, it's away from that into you know everything that the world doesn't know. So bear it away is it's a for me it's a good idiomatic um, way of talking about um, taking it away from the occasion, those conditions in which all of us live and sort of remove from grace and what happens when the moment of grace comes. <clears throat> Because how do you describe that a way into? What is what is that? You know, from earthly terms, it's just a hard thing to describe, to find words for. Let's um, let's start, you guys. Um, um, 
we've got a, a number of things to do and and I want to I'm going to open with a question that that may take more time than um, than I than I would have expected to give to this but I but I still like to do it. Any any prayer requests for tonight? I I do, Bob. Yeah. Um, you know um, about our son Matt. Yep. As, as we speak, is having a CT scan. Um, for the rest of you, he he had taken up jujitsu and thought he cracked or broke or dislocated a rib, and he ended up having an X-ray to see if any of those three things happened, and they found a nodule on his lung. And this is our son Matthew, our youngest. Um, so please um, him and and that there be a good outcome from that. And also um, for Matthew as well. Um, some of you have been around long enough know that, that Matt was married, divorced, um, it was a pretty contentious divorce, um, and Matthew has virtually no visitation rights to his son because his attorney when he got divorced just didn't do a very good job. And so he is going to court, he's, he's uh, filed a request for, for order. And he's going to court Thursday to try and get just a minimum of, you know, two weeks in the summer, have him every other Christmas, have him every other thing, because he gets none of that. Um, his ex-wife dictates when he can call him. Um, it's it's absolutely horrific. And, and she's an actress, and my son lives in California, and Asher, his, my grandson, has been in um, Atlanta since February. Matt has to fly to see him once a month, cost him, you know, over $1,000 for the weekend just to see him for less than 48 hours. Um, and if he calls, she just won't answer the phone. I mean, it's it's just, it's horrendous. And he goes to court this Thursday um, to try and get just the basic so he gets to see his son. So I would really appreciate your prayers that that gets resolved and that Matt's health mm. is good and thank you yeah no um i'm glad you asked debbie i'm going to say something in my prayer and i hope it will be okay with you and i tr if if there's anything awkward about what i do say drop me an email would you so i'm aware but what's your grandson's name asher asher, asher. Yeah. yeah one of the tribes of israel Anybody else? Anybody else? Um, <clears throat> okay, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, um, um, the day was given to, um, in celebration of Mary as the mother of our church. The readings this morning um, went back to the crucifixion and Christ um, handing um, Mary to John and saying that she would be his mother. Um, it's um, one of the dates in which we mark the beginning of the church that Mary looks over our church on earth um, and all the apostles and um, all of us who want to take Mary or the church seriously, our faith. So I ask a special grace. This is for you, Mary, 
from me, from us. Um, keep us in your prayers, all of us. Um, pray that we will all be strengthened in our faith to do what Christ has asked of us. We have a lot of help in these works that we're reading and actually in some way large burdens. It's hard to read something like The Fellowship and um, watch people take on these burdens and not lose hope. Um, one of the things I think that Frodo says to Sam is, we have to believe. Um, and somewhere there was said, I think maybe by Sam, um, that we stuck together. We didn't break it off. We stuck together. So I ask a prayer for all of us. Um, the fellowship seems to split sometime. We're reaching a point in our work together where we will not be meeting. I ask that for your prayers that in our separate ways, wherever we go, <laughs> we will carry this fellowship with us and be strengthened. Um, carrying, <laughs> bearing it away, carrying all of us with us, each other, particularly in hard times, because we've been together for a long time. So Mary, pray for us, please. Um, Father, Christ, Holy Spirit, I ask a special blessing for all of us. Help us to be strengthened in your spirit. Carry you with us in all that we do. I ask a special best blessing on Matt um, for a number of reasons. Um, help him to recover his health. Um, he can't go on to be the father he'd like to be if he's not here. Um, so watch over him. Help quiet his heart. Um, let things go well in this court hearing. Um, um, if things proceed well physically, he still has a life ahead of him with a son and whatever hardships he'll face in trying to be a father to that boy. I ask a special blessing for all of us. We learn in a book like this that we've been reading that even when things break down and, and the fellowship seems to disappear, Strange things happen. Um, children grow up under one parent. It's sadly more and more common today. And they have a different view of the world. My serious prayer myself is for Asher. Um, that you stay with him, that you offer light to his mind and heart, so that even if he's presented, prevented from seeing his father as much as Matt would like, that he learned to see something about his father in absence. That happens more and more today. A son will grow up without a father um, um, when sons need fathers today. Whatever happens, help him. At some point, a little light come to him um, to learn to see his dad in a different way, even if it doesn't involve a lot of visitations or things going the way the parents would want. It's, um, it's something more and more of us face today, so be with him, please. We know you will be. You don't abandon any of us, but um, that's my prayer, our prayer, for Matt and whatever's going on with his um, former wife and his son. Um, help in whatever particular way, even in absence, to help a father and son have a stronger bond 
because of any of these difficulties. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I'm going to carry on with um, Isaac and Archibald. Sometime in the middle of the class, I want to read a couple of medieval English poems, lyrics, because they, they, they apply so directly to the reading that I, I want to sneak them in. But I didn't want to do it today because I wanted to keep the Isaac and Archibald. Um, do you have a copy? That's nope. No. I think, help me out please, I think we're in the fourth section on page six. So, unless you guys, unless you know better, let's pick up there, but I think that's where we are, so. Remember, Isaac had arrived, or I mean, uh, the boy had arrived with Isaac at Archibald's, and they went into the cellar, and Isaac had a drink and was enjoying it. Um, and here we're picking up again on, I think on the, in the fourth section, um, with all three of them together. Now Archibald, said Isaac, when we stood outside again, I have it in my mind that I shall take a sort of little walk, stretch my legs and see what you are doing. You stay and rest your back and tell the boy a story. Tell him about the time in Safford's cabin 40 years ago, when four of us were snowed up for 10 days with only one dried haddock. Tell him all about it and be wary of your back. I, um, I will be going along. I looked up then at Archibald, and as I looked, I saw just how his nostrils widened once or twice, and then grew narrow. I can hear today the way the old man chuckled to himself, not wholesomely, not wholly, to convince another of his mirth, as I can hear the lonely sigh that followed. But at length he said, the orchard's now the place for us. We may find something like an apple there, and we shall have the shade, at any rate. So there we went, and there we laid ourselves where the sun could not reach us, and I champed a dozen of worm-blighted astrakhans, while Archibald said nothing, merely told the tale of Stafford's cabin, which was good, though Master Chilly, after his own phrase, aimed for a day like that. But other thoughts were moving in his mind, imperative, and writhing to be spoken. I could see the glimmer of of them in a glance or two, cautious or else unconscious, that he gave over his shoulder. Stafford and the rest. But that's an old song now, and Archibald and Isaac are old men. Remember, boy, that we are old. Whatever we have gained or lost or thrown away, we are old men. You look before you, and we look behind, and we are playing life out in the shadow. But that's not all of it. The sunshine lights a good road yet before us if we look, and we are doing that when least we know it. For both of us are children of the sun, like you, and like the weed there at your feet. The shadow calls us, and it frightens us. We think, but there is a light behind the stars, and we old fellows who have dared to live, we see it, and we see the other things, the other things. Yes, I have seen it come these eight years and these ten years, and I know now that it cannot be for very long that Isaac will be Isaac. You have seen, young as you are, you must have seen the strange, uncomfortable habit of the man. 
He'll take my nerves and tie them in a knot sometimes, and that's not Isaac. I know that, and I know what it is. I get it here a little in my knees, and Isaac here. The old man shook his head regretfully and laid his knuckles three times on his forehead. That's what it is. Isaac's not quite right. You see it, but you don't know what it means. The thousand little differences. No, you do not know them, and it's well you don't. You'll know them soon enough. God bless you, boy. You'll know them, but not all of them, not all. So think of them as little as you can. There's nothing in them for you or for me, but I am old and I must think of them. I'm in the shadow, but I don't forget the light, my boy, the light behind the stars. Remember that. Remember that I said it. And when the time that you think far away shall come for you to say it, say it, boy, that there be no confusion of distrust in you, no starling of snarling of a life half-lived, nor any cursing over broken things that your complaint has been the ruin of. Live to see clearly, and the light will come to you, and as you need it. But there, there, I'm going it again, as Isaac says, and I'll stop now before you go to sleep. Only be sure that you growl cautiously, and always where the shadow may not reach you. Never shall I forget, long as I live, the quaint thin crack in Archibald's voice, the lonely twinkle in his little eyes, or the way it made me feel to be with him. I know I lay and looked for a long time down through the orchard and across the road, across the river and the sun-scorched hills, but ceased in a blue forest where the world ceased with it. Now and then my fancy caught a flying glimpse of a good life beyond, sorry, of a good life beyond, something of ships and sunlight, streets and singing, Troy falling, and the ages coming back, and ages coming forward. Archibald and Isaac were good fellows in old clothes, and Agamemnon was a friend of mine. Ulysses coming home again to shoot with bows and feathered arrows made another, and all was as it should be. I was young. So next week we will finish the poem. Um, um, you, if you've been reading it, you, you'll have a sense that I mean, at the center of this poem is the sense in a young boy of two men growing old and each of them sort of picking on the other, saying he's not quite right because it's usually what friends send when they, you know, say when they reach a point where each one of them looks at the other and thinks there's something wrong with him without seeing that there's something wrong with him as well. I mean, <laughs> so there's a touching irony to the whole poem. Anyway, we'll finish, we'll finish it next week, okay? Um, I mean... Just quickly recall some of the things that we talked about last week, and then I'd like to start with that question that I sent all of you earlier today. Um, I think at the center of, of um, Return of the King is this image of the ring. Wait. Huh? The trilogy? Or the, the, the Return of the King? Um, at the center of it is this ring with these extraordinary powers. And everybody except this figure, Tom Bombadil, um, um, can't be trusted with it. Um, my own understanding of the ring is that it's an image of the autonomy that all humans want, 
it, it, and, and Detroit, or I mean, uh, Tolkien said he didn't create a symbol, but clearly it's got a symbolic meaning to it. I think it, it stands for that autonomy that all human beings want. It, it's, it's a little bit of, it's touched by a little bit of what Satan did when he rebelled. He did not want to admit that he was a contingent, a, cre a creature, a created being owing anything to God. The ring gives man a power to hold off anything threatening and to give him what he wants. It's like this complete autonomy. He can do what he wants. Um, there are implications to that. I mean, it, the body disappears, other things happen, but it gives man this extraordinary power. And it seems um, that it comes out of some longing associated with evil. That it, it, it's something that I'm, I'm speaking now outside the context of the story. Something that comes into being after the fall, or with the fall. Um, in the story, it has a long history, going back to the time when all the rings were made for all the, all the different species. But um, this one ring was created with the design of bringing all, all the people into darkness. That's Sauron, or Sauron's purpose. So it's important to, to see that in some sense it's related to sin. And as we move through the story, it's impossible to miss its growing power over people over and over and over again. Frodo says, you know, it's, it, I, 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 I think about it personally often in terms of our sins, that the older we get, the more we want to get free of them, but they're there. They just, they wear us down. They beat us down, bearing our sins. Um, so nobody can get free of this and, and the effort to get rid of it is obviously costly. It's, it's, it's the whole of the action of the, of the trilogy. And several times in the two towers, Frodo makes a point of saying, um, he can't do it. Um, he wished it had never gone to him. Sam always buoys him up. He always try to, tries to encourage him because... The burden is too strong. Remember, the fellowship began with all nine members together. I'm going to come to that in a few minutes. It seems to have broken. And at one point, um, when remember when they landed at that little landing, when Frodo and Boromir, Boromir fight, that Frodo realizes he has to go on alone, that he can't trust anybody. The, the, the power of that ring is so great. So there's a sense in which um, the ring has that kind of a meaning, it's also interesting to see that nobody, nobody can perform that task except Frodo. If he doesn't do it, it won't get done. And I think it's Tolkien's way of recognizing that different people have different tasks. Moses had a task of his own. Uh, um, Elisha, you know, we can go on to the prophets, Christ, John the Baptist, that each human being has a call that only he can perform. Who knows what it is? It, it, may be, um, it may be a wife, a mother raising kids. You know, it may be a man in a business, um, in a business perfection, profession. But each person is called to bear Christ, to bring Christ to the world. In whatever way he can do it, um, only Frodo can get this accomplished. And it, it's clear Sam can't. And it's also clear that Frodo can't do it without Sam. He cannot, as much as he says, it's mine to do. 
he, he would never get it done without Sam. Um, so we went through the fellowship that um, part of the beauty of moving from that to Two Towers is we leave the world of the Shire. It's this Arcadian pastoral world um, um, close to nature. And in the Two Towers, we move into a political world that's governed by um, um, the, the, the problems that come from having to rule a city for rulers and rulers who happen to be parents at the same time, whose families get caught up in the problems of rule. So in, in one sense, one of the ways of looking at the shift from the fellowship to Two Towers is leaving that hobbit world, the Shire, and entering a world of nasty realities, violence, betrayals, hunger for power, deception, um, giving into evil, even though the cost of it is great. Um, one of the things I mentioned last week um, had to do with the effects of the movie, some of the visual effects. And I mentioned a, a, a couple of them. One of the more important to me is um, what I would describe in terms of the Greek word diegesis. We talked about that. Remember in Plato and Aristotle, we've got those two terms, mimetic and diegesis. Mimesis means imitating something directly. Diegesis means the poet speaking in his own voice. And um, Plato talks, of, um, when he uses those true terms, he's referring to the poet speaking in his own voice, which is lyric. That's what we've been, we've been reading lyrics as long as we've been together. We open the class with a lyric. The poet is speaking in his own voice and he's making us aware of an invisible internal world, something we don't see, that he makes visible through his poem. We enter in to the interior, the secret interior of whoever is creating that lyric. In narrative, we move out of the interior into a world of external events. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. All of these guys join together in a fellowship, and these are the things that they experience. But what I wanted to suggest last week is the diegetic element is still there. It always is, in some ways, that lyric voice. We can hear it most of all in the music. The music of these films. If you go to any film, Sound of Music, Henry V, you name it, Platoon, I mean, pick out a movie. Listen to the soundtrack. What you get in that soundtrack is an expression of something interior that we feel while we're experiencing the um, events outside of us. So I didn't want to I didn't want to lose that because it seems to me the musical score is extraordinary. You know the drum beats when they're facing danger, or that pastoral sort of voice that it reminds me of Irish Scottish pipes playing. You know that that are sort of idyllic that we come in and out of those because those are feelings appropriate to those scenes. You know whatever whatever's going on. The visual field was really important because. In Tolkien's world, we're not just in a city um, or we're not in time and space the way we ordinarily think of time and space. Jackson did everything he could to give a sense of mythic depths to everything. We're in a mythic world. You can't look at a, at a vista without seeing distances of mountains and, or in caves. He's taking us back into a mythic world and I, and I, I, I want to, if I can reinforce this moment, we are not, because some of you used the, the term sci-fi, we are not in a sci-fi story. We are not. 
in a sci-fi story, the story unfolds on the basis of scientific presuppositions. It rests on them. We're in a scientific world, defined in scientific terms. Even if it's rebelling against them, the terms are set, they're scientific. We're not in that kind of a world. We're in a, a world that the Tolkien would have called fantasy, or Lewis and Tolkien would have called mythopoeia. It's a mythic world in poetry. It's a world in poetry trying to make us aware of mythic dimensions to things. Something the modern world, because the modern world rests so much on scientific suppositions, it's a world we don't see. We're too bound by time and space, unfortunately, in the way we look at things. So the movie's doing everything it can to enlarge, expand our, the boundaries of our mind. To, to make us aware that other things are going on um, beyond what's immediately present to our senses. There's always something more. And in this movie, that something more always involves evil, the, the extraordinary powers of evil at work on men, and some good attempting to answer that evil. Um, now, let me stop there. Those are just some of the some of the things that we that and we talked about last week i what i'd like to do is is um if i can just briefly describe the plot of two towers just to help everybody because i know it's a um, there's a lot going on in the plot and then i'd i'd like to i'd like to pick up with a question that i had last week or or at least a statement i think fred made that i that i really would like to go back to but let me see if i can summarize this plot very, very quickly. I think there are three s plots going on simultaneously in the two towers. The one plot has to do with Frodo and Sam. Remember when Fellowship ended, um, Frodo was going off to finish the um, quest on his own. And Sam goes out saying, I can't leave you, um, puts his life at risk when he can't swim and he you know, tries to get out to the boat. And, the, and it ends with the two of them looking out at, um, at, I think, Mount Doom and, and the journey ahead of them. It begins with the focus on Sam and, and um, Frodo picking up that same quest, except Gollum has been following them. They get a hold of him, and even though Sam would like to kill him, Frodo says no, and um, Gollum actually ends up being able to help them because he can show them the way to Mount Doom. They wouldn't be able to do it on their own. In fact, we know that early on because they keep circling back. Um, what they're doing is futile without him. So the Frodo and Sam plot is one of them, and um, I think it's important to, to note that in that plot, Sam would have killed Gollum if he'd had his way. If he'd had his way, there'd have been no way Frodo would have gotten there on his own. So Tolkien is making it clear how important it is to allow evil a place in our lives. I think Fred will back me up in this. This is straight Boethian. There is no bad fortune. You can, you can go from the beginning of this series to the end, and you'll see that every event that has the face of an awful fortune eventually turns out to help bring about this final good at the end. And it seems to me so much of that is, is focused on Gollum because Gollum is, is a despicable creature. 
Um, it's mine. It's mine. He's an image of something self-centered, I, th I think, in all human beings. That quest cannot go forward without Gollum. So the principal plot has to do with Frodo and Sam going, to completing this quest with Gollum's help. The other one has to do with Merry and Pippin, because you remember that in that scene when Bor Boromir was killed, the orcs captured uh, Merry and Pippin and took them off. And when Aragorn sees that Frodo's gone off, and um, Legolas and um, Gimli despair that the quest is broken, um, Aragorn says, no, there's hope. Um, let's go rescue Merry and Pippin. And it's an important plot because if, if those of you who've watched the movie know, they, they can't take their quest any more seriously than Frodo does. They are absolutely serious about getting the two hobbits back. When they reach that plot, that place where the, where the hobbits appeared to have been lost in that, you know, in that destruction that took place when um, the men from Rohan, Rohan you know, took on the orcs and killed them, they thought um, Pippin and Mira were dead. They almost break down. I mean, they staked all of their hopes on rescuing those two hobbits. So they are as completely serious about their quest as Frodo and Sam are for theirs. That's, that's what I'd call the second plot. The third one has to do with um, the kings, with Theoden um, and um, what's the other? And um, Denethor. And it's through them that we're taken to the cities and these concerns that Tolkien has about fathers and rulers. And what we um, learn in that subplot is that, generally speaking, fathers are not very trustworthy men, not, not very trustworthy leaders. They're too taken by power. They're too taken by vanity. They want to be right. There's a lot of what they do that's self-justifying. What they do is exemplify what the elves have said and what most everybody says in this movie, that men, and I, I, I hope everybody's in, by men I mean men and women, humans, are extremely weak. That humans are given in to a weakness that seems to be greater than the weakness that dwarves and elves face. So it's the it's those three plots that Fokker, um, Tolkien's exploring in this book. Um, some of the most important um, themes in my mind that focus that action involves those three subplots. One of them is what I would call the pathos of Gollum. I hope I hope we can get to him. It, it, it's really a major concern for me um, because it's hard for me not to like. However, shopping shocking this is, it's hard for me not to like Gollum. Um, he's an amazing creature. He's so divided, so tormented, and I believe I believe I believe that he's an image of of a possessive love at the center of the human soul for every human being. It's mine. It's mine. I want it. And he's willing, he's willing to do what he does in the spirit of a, it's a social contract theorist. When Frodo reaches out to him, Gollum says, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. So it's that social contract mindset, I'll do this if you do this, so we can mutually help each other. So he's an amazing image. He, it seems to me in, in this grotesque sort of figure, we have a way of looking into the souls of almost everybody in the story. Um, in, in some way or another. 
the kings, the fathers we have to look at. One of the other major themes is that nature is alive, particularly in this middle book. Nature speaks, the trees speak. There's a wisdom in the trees and it's interesting to me that their natural inclination is to speak in poetry. You know, when Treebird takes the hobbits off, um, thinking he's going to drop them off, he's constantly rhyming. And he's doing, I think, what Sam and Frodo were doing in the first part in the, in the book. We don't get it in the movie, but from what Suzanne says, it's, it's in the book. Poetry is the natural language of man. It was the natural language of Eden. There's nothing that could have been said in Eden that would not have been harmonious. Yeah? How could it have been? We're in a fallen world. Language breaks down. Po I've been saying this forever. Poetry takes us back to an Edenic world. Chaucer, we talked about this with all of his rhyming, you know, when, when he's describing the death of uh, Arcita, remember? And he's saying, I can't talk about this, I can't, talk, I can't tell you this, I can't. And all of it's in rhyme. It's just a lovely oral expression of what Boethius says. There is harmony with us every moment. Do we see it? Can we feel it? It's there. Um, so the natural language is poetry. Um, the trees speak. The trees do everything they can to, uh, um, to stay out of the war. Um, Pippin and Mary, remember, are horrified because they want their help. And, and Treebeard says they're going to have a council they meet and, and the decision of the council is they're not going to go into war. It's Pippin, and, and I want to come back to this later, Pippin, who tricks Treebird into turning around and going back to Isengard, and when Treebird sees Isengard, that, the, that he and the rest of the Ents become furious and attack the tower and destroy it. Um, Aragon's um, horse, remember, um, what's his name? Brago. What's his again? Brago. Brago? B-R-E-G-O. Brago, thanks. Remember that um, Aragon's horse searches him out. In fact, I'm going to read this now. I've been dying to do this because you know I love poetry. I, you can all suffer me for two minutes here. Um, I read this poem years ago to you guys. I know I've read it before, but I want to read it now because it's re it's so appropriate. Aragon's horse searches him out and finds him. And if you remember the scene, he kneels down knowing he's wounded so Aragon can grasp the horn of the saddle and get pulled up. So nature is responding. The, the subhuman order is responsive to man. The, 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 the forest, the horse, things speak. You know that it, swords speak, rivers speak. Um, in the modern world, we've inundated, we've neutered it, we've taken away the voice of things. We look at things in abstractions. We're one remo step removed. Here we're taken back to the concrete world. We're out of a world of abstractions, mathematical abstractions. We're in a world of sentient speaking things. Because in nature, everything is a subject. Each tree, St. Thomas said this, subjectivism, I think is the Latin word. Each tree, each thing in nature is a subject in its own right. We tend to objectify them, to make them objects with our mind. You classify trees as trees. But each thing in nature is a subject in its own way. The medieval Thomas, no, St. Francis, brother, son, sister, moon. 
St. Francis did not live in a nominalistic world. He believed that everything in nature spoke. In a nominalistic world, we remove ourselves. Things don't speak anymore. We're in a world of abstractions. So everything in nature speaks in this world. It, um, it, it's a sign that the God behind it spoke. He said, be, and things were. Here, I want to read this poem that I read to you years ago called The Three Ravens. If you go into the our poetry collection, you'll find it included in the medieval. I think there's two files on, on medieval poetry, and I think both of them contain this. This is a traditional ba um, ballad. It's called The Three Ravens. So it would have been sung as a ballad. It's lyric. There were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree with a down, a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree. They were as black as they might be with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. I'm not going to repeat the refrain, but just know that it comes at the end of each couplet. The refrain repeats itself again. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? Set this, all of you, set this against Hemingway when Santiago goes out on the boat and his representation of nature is the birds seek out the fish, the fish will eat fish, everybody eats everybody else because the world by nature is predatory. The instinct governing what everybody does is self-preservation. That was Darwinian, it was the world in which Hemi grew up in, and you know that Santiago is answering that, or there's a kind of heroism because he tends to, to transcend that way, but that's what he encounters, and it's, it's given a point when all the sharks eat his marlin, right? They just feast on it, so it brings the point home. So here, we've got exactly the same thing. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? So at the center of this thing is something selfish in man. We do things for ourselves, for our self-preservation. We do everything ourselves to keep ourselves alive, comfortable, well. Down in yon green field there lies a knight slain under his shield. With a down, down it goes on. His hounds they lie down at his feet, so well they can their master keep. The dogs don't abandon him. His hawks, they fly so eagerly, there's no fowl, dare him come nigh. Down there comes a fallow doe, as great with young as she might go. She's carrying. She's going to give birth. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. She got him up upon her back and carried him to earthen lake. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself, ere even song time. God send every gentleman such hawks, such sound, such hounds, and such a leman. That even um, the doe gives up her life and the child for humans. It's just, I mean, it's one of the things that was, we inherited in the mid Christian Middle Ages that the, you know, the modern world is sort of put away. But I couldn't help but think about that poem when I was watching um, Aragon's horse come to bear him off, and you know that he takes him to, um, um, what's that? Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep. So um, the, the, the theme of nature being alive, that nature is suffering, wounded, the trees 
want nothing to do with the war, but once they see what's happened, they go to war, they put their own lives at risk. You know, some of them are burnt, um, some of them destroyed, hacked up. Um, so we're watching a wounded nature um, asserting itself. When the, when the, when the trees def, um, destroy the, or defeat um, Saruman, we see nature reasserting itself. It's a very important theme of the 20th century. If you guys have watched, um, what's that science fiction where they all go to that land with all the dinosaurs? What's that series, you guys? Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. You know, the science keeps fooling around, but nature keeps reasserting itself. We've, we've seen it a number of times in major, in major works. Um, two last things that I can think about, and I'm not sure how to put these except to see them in terms of ego and egotism and humility. Um, Frodo and Sam are the ones to carry it out. They're both hobbits. They're notable for their smallness, their lowliness. The men in their lordliness, in their pride and thinking they can do so much, constantly make mistakes. So do, so, so do Sam and Frodo. But there's a lowliness inherent in them that sustains them in a different way. They're an, I think they're an image of humility, and, and, and it's a humility that, um, that's praiseworthy when we see it in humans. Aragon has it, and I think Fermer, to me, is um, one of the humans that most exemplifies that virtue. Um, his father hates him, he scorns him, he puts him down next to Beremir. Um, when Faramir comes on Frodo, he wants to take the ring back to please his father. And at the very end, he decides to let him free, even though it means he could lose his life. Because he's violating the rule of his father. It's just another instance of the father-son um, problems that we see running through this um, story. Um, it's Pippin who makes the decision, who tricks Treebird to turn around. Treebeard. And it's only, it's only when they do that Treebeard um, and the rest of the forest can um, defeat um, Saruman. So over and over and over again, it, it's the little things, the very small little things that people do but sometimes makes the, the extraordinary difference. Um, um, go back over the course of the Frodo Sam plot and, and watch the little things, the little decisions they have to make, particularly with respect to trust having to do with um, Gollum. So there's this dynamic between the pride of, particularly of leaders, and the lowliness of some men and, um, and the importance of it. And finally, just the theme of poetry, and you know it's one I've been um, stressing from the very beginning. Poetry is the, is the normal language of men in Eden. There could have been nothing contingent, nothing disordered, nothing inharmonious. Whatever was said there, whatever was done, had to be in harmony. It had to rhyme. There had to be a beauty to it. The trees still hold on to it. And remember, it's interesting, Treebird says, Treebird says of a... Uh, of, uh, Sarman. When Sarman was younger, he said he used to take walks in the forest. He used to walk in the forest. And, and then he said, now he has the mind of a machine. This contrast between nature and the harmony of nature and the kind of wreckage that men make of it by what they do in their quest for power. 
It's the theme of the city again that we've had with us since the beginning, since Enoch. So the theme of poetry, sand picks in, um, slips into it periodically, the trees do. Um, it's implied in all the music of the, um, all of the scenes. Mark, go ahead. Yes. So, where do you get off on thinking that everything in Eden was poetry? Everything what? Say it again. Say it again. Everything poetry. He want, wait, by, if I could, he wants, he wants to know where I get off on, <laughs> I just want to be clear about that. Yeah. Where do I get off on? Do, did you have yeah. an answer? Because that, 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 that to me is extremely... Um, Getting off. <laughs> in a funny way for me, it's kind of offensive because I think that poetry is for dreamers and that kind of thing, and they were anything but. But to me, the language of God would probably be a incomprehensible to us, but b I think if you were a literary person like yourself, it would be poetry. If you're much more of an engineer, it might be a little more serious and realistic. Um, it wouldn't have to be one thing or another. God help me! Um, oh God help I, me! I'm just I'm just curious as to why you would believe that. You're not just curious. You're you're piling accusations. Almost every statement you make, Mark. God's sake! You're, I only I only wish you were only curious. Here, let me try to answer you. Where I get off in this? First of all, I'd say, and I think I I think Fred would we Fred you come in on me or, um, um. Wait, hold on. Let me let me try to take seriously your question, Mark. Um, I'm not getting off on anything, and I don't think I'm making claims for poetry because I happen to be in poetry. Um, if you read the Bible closely, if you take a work like Job or the, or creation, let's say the creation story. In the beginning, God did this, did this, this. If you read through the creation story, it's hard to read that and not hear poetry. He did this. He did this. He, it's all. If you look at the verses in the Old Testament Jewish in the language. It's all presented in terms of parallels and contrasts and balance. It's a very poetic structure. When you watch what God does, he's doing things very poetic. He spoke a word. There's no way to look at that word in, in any other way except as harmonious. When you have God replying to Job at the end of the story, he makes clear, where were you? I'm good. I should have named him. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Job. <laughs> where were you at the beginning of things? And what he does is detail all the order and beauty that he brought to creation. There's nothing God made that wasn't harmonious. That's and Beatrice, or I mean, uh, Boethius picks up the same thing when he's describing God's order. He's saying that love did this. There's order, harmony. Here's the creator of it. Here's the effects of it. We see it. And to, just to make sure that this isn't just a claim for poetry, that I'm not trying to mm, flash colors or feathers or whatever. I would say the same thing's true of science. And I can't believe Fred wouldn't say this. If you look at most scientists today, or always, forever, and I know this from personal experiences with um, Nobel Prize winners, all sci most good scientists will say that one of the greatest longings behind the work that scientists do is this search for beauty. They believe that when they find an equation like DNA or or a theory like um, Copernicus's or Ptolemy's, what, what they're doing is showing an order to the universe, and it's on the basis of that order that they can make predictions. MC squared. MC squared? What? M whatever. 
Anyway, so, so at a mathematical level, what they're doing with their abstractions only, is only expressing what I would express, and I don't think I'm preening myself here, Mark. They're expressing a harmony and beauty. It, it's not verbal the way it is for poetry. I mean, that's an oral medium. But um, it's an example of exactly the same thing I'm saying poetry does. It's no different. The roots are the same. The source of all knowledge, whether it's scientific or, or um, faith, is God and his word. Um, the word logos, which is another word for Christ, means there is an order and a harmony to the universe. That's what logos means. The modern world sense against that chaos says the world is chaotic. I don't know how they can say that because all the evidence is in the other direction. It just means everything in nature. That's why I, I tried to use, um, when I used Chaucer's example with the poetry and the rhyme, we went, we did that when we were doing the tales. The rhyming couplets is, is not an arbitrary artifice. It's Chaucer's way of showing that no matter what's going on in life, he's, he's illustrating what Boethius' is truth. There is no bad fortune. God is always at work trying to bring order out of chaos. Poetry is, the, the claim that I'm making here is that the language of Eden was poetry. Um, one of the claims that you know I've made when we've been reading poetry, and by the way, I, this, is, I, this is actually one of the statements of a Nobel Prize poetry winner in the last couple of years, who said the, what's being expressed in almost all poetry is either a long, we've gone through this, a longing to return to Eden, to recover that completeness we once had and have lost, we all long, that's what suburbia is. We long to recover that. That's what's behind so much of what we do. Or um, to go on to the New Jerusalem. But in either case, what's behind that is a longing to recover the oneness that we had with our world. And, um, I mean, you know that so much of the poetry that we've read is, has given expression to just those sorts of things. But. So I don't think I'm getting off on anything more. I think I'm, I'm making a statement in what I believe the evidence supports, or I wouldn't say it. I'm not, I'm not trying to be outrageous here. I'm, I'm trying to point out something that, that's obvious that most people don't look at. It's there. Most people, most people look, read, read Chaucer and, and have nothing good to say about his rhymes. They think it's artifice because the modern world thinks if we don't do everything spontaneously and freely, there's something wrong with our poetry. Um, anyway, I, I, I'm not trying to make boasts here that are you know, in support of a profession I happen to be in. I'm saying that because that's what I happen to see in the, you know, in the poetry that, the really good poetry that makes up a large part of the traditions. Anybody else on, on, I guess some of the outrageous things I'm saying here, or at least one of them? I'm trusting, Mark and I, 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 I mean, I, 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 you know, I can hear your voice for years now, sort of skeptically. I can remember some of the things that you said that were not very nice, but, you know, when we were dealing with poetry and you had some pretty hard things to say. 
I mean, I can't believe that at times when you've been hearing me read poems, particularly the really moving poems, I, I'm, I don't know what your response, any, the response of any of you to the Robinson poem, Isaac and Archibald, but when you hear poetry, you hear a rhythm. If you read the Old Testament, you hear rhythms. You, you, um, there's no Old Testament writings that doesn't unfold in terms of balances, contrasts, zoigmas, things splitting off. Um, setting one thing against each other. Those are all poetic structures. They, they're not doing couplet rhymes, but um, the greater part of the Old Testament is approaches verse. Read the Psalms. Hmm? Read the Psalms. Doc said just read the Psalms. You can read the Psalms, but you can read almost anything. What, the point that I, wanna, I don't want to lose track of here, um, in the book, we don't see it in the movie, I know it from Suzanne's telling me. In the book, there, there are passages um, where Sam and Frodo are moving off and doing something, and the two of them slip into song, into poetry. The dwarves sing occasionally. Tree bird slips into verse. Sam periodically slips into verse. He did it in the movie. Because, um, well, here, let me do it. Let me, do it. let me try to approach this differently. A lot of the modern world is uncomfortable with formalities. Very uncomfortable, particularly Americans. In the Protestant character, we want everything to be spontaneous. Except, if you go to a graduation, it takes a formal aspect. Would you feel the dignity you would hope you would feel when a child is graduating without the formalities? We turn on TV periodically and see something, a funeral, a wedding. Take away the formality. Will the meaning be there? We'll lose something of the meaning to any important event by undoing the formality, the formality gives a dignity, it gives a depth, and it takes us beyond our personal feelings. It, it helps hold on to our personal feelings, takes us to something deeper. Take away those formalities, and part of the meaning would be lost in any of those things. Marriages, graduations, funerals. So when the men slip into poetry here in the book, or when Treebeard does, it's not, it's not just an accident. Um, it's something Tolkien's aware of as a writer that some things need to be put to music to recover that desire we all have for beauty, order, peace. Um, let me stop. And, unless, and Mark, I don't know if you want to follow that up with, a, with another, another one of your questions. Uh, no, I just have a little bit difficult time seeing it the way you see it. So, that's all. Yeah. I, I, I don't... I just see it very differently. I don't... And I understand the part of the poetic thing. Um, and there is... It does bring out good poetry, which... I mean, you like it a whole lot more than I do. I generally can't stand poetry. But it's it can bring out very, very emotional things. Um... But I guess I just look at it in a little more realistic, I would say, non-fantasy type of of, of, uh, of, of way. That's but, all. Yeah. Um, let me. I don't know if this will help either because I don't want to. I don't want to labor this. Saint Thomas said. Saint Thomas said, um, and with a theologian's precision. Um, I, I don't think what I'm saying, Mark, is unrealistic, and that what you're saying is realistic. In fact, I happen to believe just the opposite, that 
there's something a little bit unrealistic even though we see that differently. But I would say I'm enough of a realist to say this and believe its basis is in reality and it has St. Thomas's support. St. Thomas would say beauty is that which being seen or heard pleases. St. Thomas wrote poetry, St. Thomas did, because he knew that it was only in putting certain lines to verse that you could capture the beauty that you wanted to capture. That had to do with the Mass, the order of the Mass, the beauty of the Mass. Turn the Mass, oh here, put, turn the Mass into a Qadar plane balloon sort of thing. Well, what happened to the Mass, the sacrament, if people simply did away with the formalities, did away with the beauty, would people, would they be as likely to feel the depth of the feelings they would if they, if they protected the formalities of it? We, we did that in Vatican too. Yeah. I mean, that's been done for 40 years, for yeah. 60 years now. Yeah, and we've seen some of the effects. Anyway, just, mm -hmm. I just want to quote St. Thomas on that. Beauty is that which being seen or heard is what's experienced directly with our sin. By the beauty of the thing before us, it gives us pleasure. When we, um, when we were doing Chaucer in uh, Seas, we started Chaucer last week and we were doing the rhymes, one of the questions I asked everybody was I said, when you have a couplets, because you know Chaucer runs in mostly, usually in running couplets, when you hear a word and you know the, the, like Dante's um, tercets, the, the three-line rhyme scheme. Dante does the same thing. Why does Dante rhyme? Because he's being unrealistic? No, he isn't. He, he's trying to help people recover a sense of the Trinity when most moderns are in their heads and can't hear it. He wants people to hear it because it's there in poetry. Take away the poetry and you don't hear it. My question to the group was, when you hear a word like moon... Um, what happens when you hear hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock, the clock struck one, one and down he ran. And down he ran. I'm saying this really seriously. Take any rhyme. That's a ridiculous one, but it's, I love it. I love it because I love rhymes. I love the little blue truck. It's one of the books I read to our kids all the time because I love the rhyming of it. And I just love it. I, I mean, they'll hear the love in my voice when I read that book. Um, when you hear a line like that, Hickory Dickory Dock, the classroom, what happens when you hear um, the mouse ran up the clock? If Hickory Dickory Dock, if, the, if one line ended with that sound dock and the other line ended with something other than a rhyming word, what would happen? And what happens when that, when that first sound is picked up in another? I'm asking this at a very basic level. I'm not trying to be academic at all. Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. Hickory dickory dock, um, the, class, the, the mouse went up the wall. What's the difference at, an, at a purely emotional level, psychological level, between those two sets of lines? Hickory dickory dock, the, the mouse ran up the clock. Hickory dickory dock, the class went up the wall. The mouse ran up the wall. What's the difference? What happens when you hear that second line end with the same sound? Tracy, go. Uh, to me, it provides comfort whether you understand it or not, because it's a it's an oral uh, harmony, as you say. And I had this experience recently. I was driving to Arkansas and looking for a book to listen on tape, and I needed it to be three hours ish. You know. <laughs> and, uh, Good luck. So I, 
Yeah. I had Lewis, is it Lewis Carroll, uh, the Alice in Wonderland, in mm-hmm. my queue. And it was three hours, and I listened to the preview, and it was a rhyme. It starts with a, a poem, a rhyme. And it, I didn't understand it, but it made me feel com. It just comforted me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's comfort that yeah. you feel. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, me Rest. too. Sorry. Rest. Rest. I, the word that, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more, Stacy. When, here, desire, St. Thomas, this is St. Thomas. Who is a, the realist of realists in my in my mind? Not me, not Mark, Thomas. Thomas is the realist of realists, um, and and he will he will say that the end of all desire, the end of all desire, is to come to rest. God is love. God has no desire, none, because desire itself implies an incompletion. Yeah, you want something. Does God lack anything? Does he want anything? He loves. So whatever, whatever his position is to us, it's love, not desire. He loves us. The question is, can we enter into that love? Love is different from desire because desire means you have an object. You will, your desires will not get put to rest until they're completed, until they're satisfied. When you're hungry, you eat something and you're satisfied. You are comforted. You're at rest. So the end of our desires is rest. When you hear a word, hickory dickory dock, and you hear that other word follow, you're imme- I, couldn't agree, I couldn't agree more with you, Tracy. And that was as unacademic an explanation as I could ever hope for. Our, our hearts come to rest. What happens when you don't hear it? When it's not fulfilled, will your heart be rested? No, it will not. Because the natural, from Thomas, this is St. Thomas, Mark, for Thomas, all desires were meant to end in rest. So when poets are using order in a painting or musical scheme, Bach, whoever you want to name, they're working off that same principle. The order and beauty they bring to something leaves our souls at rest. Um, completed, there's a sense of completion. So rhyme schemes, particularly something like Chaucer, when you, you know, look at Shakespeare sometimes when he falls into rhyme. Rhyme schemes are just an oral way of adding something to the meaning of a sentence, whatever that meaning is in you know, any particular sentence. But orally, the, the sound is meant to help reinforce the sense of rest we feel or completion. Let me put it differently. Chaucer's not a modern. He, believe, he, he's, he believes in Boethius. Lots of moderns will say there's no rest there. In fact, they'll say they're realistic. They're the ones who are realist because chaos is what's real in the world. If chaos is the principle of a world, there can never be any adventure, there can never be any romance, because nothing will be lost. If everything's chaos, what's there to be lost or gained? Nothing means anything. For there to be any meaning in the world, there has to be a dogma, something fixed, so that we have something to lose. So all beauty, all music, all harmony implies an order, an answer to desires. That's why when you read so many modern novels, they they end chaotically and you're left unsatisfied because a modern writer will think, there's no meaning to the world. Leave us with horrors or violence or something unanswered. Because that's more, they think they're being more realistic. 
I happen to disagree with them because I think there's order everywhere in the world. All you have to do is look around. Um, Fred, sorry, you've had your you've you've had you wanted to make a comment. I I just wanted to sh share with everyone. I, I don't know if if y'all are watching the source or reading the no, source. No, search. The search. Sorry, the search. The series. The series. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would I would recommend that you do if you haven't. It's on form. The it's on form. form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you can access it through St. Francis. But the third uh, part in that series speaks, I think, directly to this topic. And it, it points out very clearly that theology and poetry and science are very much mutually inclusive. Yep. And, yep. Yep. you know, if you look at um, Georges Lamotre, which is typically recognized as the author of the Big Bang Theory. Um, you know, I've read the Genesis reading, I don't know how many times at the Easter Vigil. And the thing that comes to my mind when I read that, and that's, to me, that's pretty close to poetry when you read it. Uh, it's definitely a story. And, and many, many people, you know, challenge the Genesis story with with science but what what comes out very clearly is that they are very much mutually inclusive and they both bring out whether you study the big bang theory or the copernic the copernican theory he was a he was a catholic canon and he turned the world upside down with his theory yep i i think we have to get away from this is it poetry? Is it theology? Or is it science? Because the true, the true science speaks very much to the order of the universe. Yep. As does as does our theology. And if you if you look at that in depth, uh, I can't read the Genesis story without without thinking about the Big Bang theory because the only way it works is that there's some in credible force out there that triggered this whole thing from the beginning 13.7 billion years ago there was nothing <laughs> just total blackness and then all of a sudden there was something and it all started with light and if you go back and look at the big bang theory uh einstein's theory of relativity it, they're all very much in sync mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of scientists who wouldn't agree with that, but I but I couldn't agree with it more, Fred. I mean, um, most good scientists will say Not the that. real scientists. Now, yeah. you know, if you're talking about Freud, no real scientist considers Freud a scientist. But if you go back to Bacon and Copernicus and Einstein and Newton, the real scientists, they all believed in God. You can't help but believe in God yeah. if you're a theoretical physicist. Because you can't explain it any other yeah, way. Yeah, and one of the beauties about Einstein is he, he so often affirms the place of miracles in the world, and he knows that um, he knows about their presence and, and can't make sense of anybody not making a place for them or for God. Yeah. Listen, let me stop here because I, I want to be careful over time because I really do want to get to the book and some of these questions. But I, I wanted to open with this question, and Fred, I'm going to turn to you if I can. Some at some point in our meeting last week, you made the statement. It may have come in response to one of my questions because it 
was one of the more serious questions, but we didn't have time for it because we were looking at the plot. But I think somewhere last week you made the statement, you thought that, um, that the fellowship, the first work, and I'm assuming all three, but we can stay with the fellowship in two towers. I'd, I'd, I'd like not to go on to the final work tonight, but I think you made the statement that you thought that this was a very Catholic work. Um, can you elaborate on that? Can you, can you flesh that out at all, make sense of it? I think you said that. Am, am I mistaken? No, I, I think <laughs> at, the, at the risk of gathering the wrath of my fellow classmates, I mean, I, I think you can see a number of the sacraments as you go through the story. Um, and to me, if, if you look at what the ring symbolizes, if you, if you, if you ask the question, why did Tolkien tell the story in fantasy? If you, you ask the question, why, why a fellowship? And you look at each one of the characters within that fellowship and what they each, each represent, um, and I and I you know part of it is I know for a fact that Tolkien was very much a Roman Catholic. I just think as you and 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 the <laughs> I promised the class I would bring this up, but the the Boethian aspect of this God has a plan. I mean it's all there. I mean and it's not like you like I think I I mentioned it's not like a a Faulkner story with where you have to you have to dig it out. I mean it's blatantly obvious. But that's just that's just my opinion. Yeah. Anybody else have a thought on this? Anybody want to offer anything? It seems to me you can make the case that this is Christian in a broad sense easily. Even there, you'd have to do some work because there's nothing overtly religious about it. I mean, we're, nobody's in church. Um, um, we don't see people falling on their knees to pray. Um, we don't see people going through religious practices. It's an adventure fantasy story. So on the surface, it's just that. Um, um, but it seems to me it's deeply questioned, or I mean Christian, sorry. My question is, it, it, is, is there something to it um, that is markedly Catholic? Can, is there something there? Um, Debbie, I think I'm going to pull all of you guys in this. You have any thoughts? I don't. Don't anybody. I don't want to put anybody in the spot. If you if you're not comfortable or you don't have a thought on it, don't just pass. Um, Tracy. No, I've been thinking about this question, and I, I can't. I couldn't articulate other than. So it is so obviously Boethian, and I would have to, then you would have to ask the question, are those principles not found in Protestantism? And I don't have an answer for that. Hmm. Why would you say it's so obviously Boethian? Can you just give one quick, easy example of what, why you say that? What comes to mind to make you say? I started that? reading it again, and it's everywhere. Like, I, I just finished book one, and it's, everywhere obvious just like what fred said so uh one example that came to mind is aragon when he was talking to the king and the king was kind of dis despairing without hope you know what can one do in the face of so much evil 
And Aragon says, I don't know what he says, but he says something like, um, you know, I can't remember what he said, but he said something like about, and it's not something trite, like there's always hope. It was something more significant. I can't remember. But when I was reading Boethius, I was, I thought of that scene. Does anybody remember what he said? I I don't, because I, but go ahead, but I, yeah. But I, I'm easily imagining what you're talking about. What I remember between Aragon and Theoden is when, when um, Hell's Deep was under attack, and and the orcs had broken in, and everything looked lost. Yeah. Um, Theoden's a good king. Um, we saw him lose it all with Wormtongue. I mean, he he'd become a awful, despicable creature. I mean, a man, but he recovered in an amazing way and was restored and became a good king. But even then, he had qualities that um, that showed that there was a weakness in him. At the very end, when everything looked lost, um, Aragon, the king, said, what do we do? I mean, I, I don't know if that's the Dysterian moment you're talking about. But Aragon said, follow me, let's go out and meet them. Yeah. But he, Aragon, had in his mind what um, Gandalf had said, that at the first rising of the sun, because of that scene where the sun is coming through the window, when we know that they're going to go out. So it's a, it's a scene that you could say is a little bit, equi- um, there's an element of equivocation or ambivalence. It, it's, it's not like a black-white development of something. And the king suddenly lights up and says, all for glory. You know, and there's a sense of that egotism in him that he hasn't lost. And Aragon's um, reprimand, response that carries a, a note of reprimand, he said, for your people. I mean, so the, the mindset of both of them was very, very different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think uh, Boethius is everywhere in the thing. But And remember, Boethius' the great principle was not only is God at work bringing good out of evil, so the way we stand to difficulties will reflect our character. He said at the end in his argument when he's making the distinction between predestination and free will that if God determined everything, if if he predisposed so that men lacked free will, then giving rewards or punishment would make no sense. There's no merit if if you've been destined to do something because then you don't have a choice. So the very end of his argument depended on upholding two things at once, God's providence and man's free will, that he has choices, otherwise rewards and punishments will mean nothing. Because he, he saw it as a good that men who chose evil would go to hell, and a men who chose differently would not. Um, Mark, do you have any thoughts about, I mean, can, do you have any thoughts about, is there anything in the movie that, or the, yeah, the movies that we've been reading that that you would say reflect a Catholic worldview? I know that's a tough question, you guys. Cause I, well, I've been thinking about, a, I've been trying to come up with a specific scene or quality of the movie that, that I could sit there and pinpoint. That's Catholic. And I haven't yet. The movie itself is actually very non-religious. There's no gods like in the Greeks. I mean, there's no religion in this whatsoever, but morality is everywhere in the movie. 
doing the right thing, what they say, what they believe, why they do things, uh, that there is evil and then there is good. It, it, you know, it, 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 it pervades the entire, the whole, the whole book, everything about it, but it's very non-religious. And I think that's interesting that you could put good and evil and, you know, you know, people who make good decisions, bad decisions, you look at Gollum and how self-centered and, you know, it's almost like, you know, if you were going to pick a, you know, to try and uh, give an example of all the seven deadly sins or whatever, right? You know, you know, you could pick something like Gollum and say that that that's all, everything about you know. But there's I can't think of anything that is specific Catholic. I know that Tolkien was a Catholic, um, and and you can I think see or feel or read you know however you want to experience this this particular story. Um, a lot of Catholic sentiments and Catholic. Would you would sit there and say that's a Catholic belief, in just what's in a line that somebody says or how they act, but the, I don't think there's anything specific. Like you could point to, ah, that represents the Eucharist. Oh, this represents this. I, I can't find anything like that. Yeah. And, and I wonder if it was done on purpose by him, because if it if he did, and I, I have no evidence one way or another, but if you are able to present. A lot of I think when we read or see this very Catholic things that we just yeah that's Catholic, but you're not telling anybody that's pretty damn sneaky and pretty damn genius, <laughs> right? To put all that in a movie without being overt about it. Um, so I just think there's a lot of Catholic sentiment, but I cannot put my finger on one particular scene or something that is definitely yes this represents yeah this sacrament or you know yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's forgiveness and there's all the things that, you know, Beatitudes are all throughout, you know, there's all sorts of things that are in it, but nothing that's, ah, that's this. Barbara, you're next on my screen. You have a, all I can say before, wait, before you, beware, be, be careful of these sneaky Catholics. <laughs> Just, Barbara, do you have any, do you have any, sorry, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, um, I just had, it's of course Christian, but I, I thought you all would laugh at me because I don't remember things really well. And when I want to remember something, I write it out on one of these little boards and I put it on my refrigerator. And this is what I wrote. Um, Sam said to Frodo, he said that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. And in big things and in little things, I think that's a good thing to remember. That the good things are worth making sacrifices for. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Christian, certainly, I couldn't find Catholic either. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sue, do you have a, do you have a thought? I know this can't be easy, but go ahead. Wanna... Yes, I, I guess I want you to tell me what is Catholic and not Protestant, not Christian. I, I don't understand because I can see a lot of Christian views in this, mm -hmm. but nothing I'm yep. seeing as particularly Catholic. Yep. But I'm not Catholic, so I need somebody who is to tell me why they think it is. Yeah, good for you. Um, let's see, any, I, anybody else? If not, I'm going to go to Suzanne because... And she no yes she's she's giving me nasty looks right now, um, Doc. Just at the when we were talking, what were the 
What were two of the things that came to your mind when you were when we were talking about this question? Well, we talked about. Um, you all can hear Suzanne, can't you? Yeah. We talked about the importance of the physical body. So the evil people have no have no real body. I mean, Saruman does, but um, but the 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 Nazgul, you know, the ring has sucked all of their physical body out of them. The only reason we can even see them is because they throw clothes on over their spirits. Um, Gollum is deformed. Um, the eye has no body. He keeps reaching for a body and he won't have it until he gets the ring back. So he never will have it. Um, there is something about um, the physicality of of our bodies that I think speaks to me of of Catholics. We talked about um, the company that everybody. Wait, before you get to because that was a, you had another one. What was the other one, Doc? One was the body, and the other one was. God, we are losing it. <laughs> Just are, it's getting worse and worse. You don't remember what the other one was? Go ahead with the fellowship, Doc. Go ahead. That it's um, that it's a community, um, and it's you know it, it's it's not one person, not one hero. Um, everybody in the community works. Um, you know, Frodo and Sam have their job, and when the fellowship apparently splits up, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli have their job, Pippin and Merry play their part, Gandalf is there, the elves are there, um, everybody's there basically, except Boromir. Um, it, it's a community of of people, and it's not just men, and it's not just elves. It's a whole. It's a whole community. Um, Why is that more Catholic than not? Could we, Sue? Hold on, just on one question. I mean, we give it a minute, and let's get back to it. Finish, Doc. With anything more, or can you remember the? I can't remember the other thing. Maybe it'll come to me. Okay, sorry. Can you answer Sue's question? Um. I'm not sure it is, Sue. I mean, I, I think of Catholics as being a large community, and um, the, the Protestants keep splitting off. You know, they keep, they're, they stay, you know, they don't split off one person at a time, but, um, but they keep splitting off. They don't agree. And so they splinter and they go, they say, you're wrong, I'm right, and they go and found their own community. Um, that seems to me more Protestant. Um, you know, you can go back to Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, or you could come forward to the, um, the fundamentalists who, you know, split over who knows what. Um, 
I'm not talking about fundamentalism. I'm not thinking about that. But Christianity to me involves all. And there were reasons for those splinters. Not all right. But reasonable. But I don't see the Catholics as having a right to the whole. So I, I don't I, I understand what you're saying. They were sort of the first, but because they had problems and showed themselves maybe, okay, now I'm going to get out risky with the rest of you, but maybe not worthy, uh, maybe not true to the whole outline because of early popes, because of a whole bunch of things. We know popes were upside down on top of one another in 80s. Um, I have trouble with that being the only reason. I, I see it as Christian, absolutely. And I don't see it as fundamentalist. So I, I guess there are ways in which I think Christian and Catholic, I, I don't know, I just see it a little differently. But that's my upbringing, and I realize it's not the common one according to uh, with this group. So I understand that. Yeah, don't make any apologies for not being common, because I would think most of us would see ourselves there. I certainly do. But Sue, so let me let me offer a couple of thoughts in response to the question that I'm asking. And Suzanne, I can't. If, if you could struggle, Doc, for a minute to try to come to the second one, I can't remember. Let me just give a couple of thoughts here. Um, and we can disagree on this at some point, but at least... Boethius. Boethius, was it? Yeah, her second point was that it was so Boethian that, you know, there's... Um, see if I can simplify this. We're not going to get to two towers tonight. <laughs> if we don't, we'll carry it over and do two towers next week and put off... A return the following week. I think it's a really hard question, um, honestly. But and and to get to it, I, I mean, I agree with Mark that that overtly there's nothing religious about the thing. Almost. I I, I don't want to I don't want to quite go black white on that. But but I would certainly agree. It, it's not ecclesial. We don't see people in prayers. We don't see them worshiping gods. It's an adventure story. But I but I would. I would go. I would. I would nuance it a little bit myself and say so. It's not a black. That there are religious aspects to it. But let me come to it. I want to. I want to. I want to try to get to the, the question that we're dealing with right now because it's a naughty one. I don't think anybody would dispute the fact that there were corruptions in the church when the reformers came along. Um, one of the one of the questions we would have to deal with going back to the Reformation is whether the um, corrections were um, internal, intrinsic, let's say, or external. Um, nobody would deny the corruptions in the church. I mean, they were everywhere. It's one thing to reform people. It's another thing to change dogmas. And the major, the major reformers did. Um, I think I think we were together too when we did the Catholic thing on Milton and Dante. Um, if you look at 
um, if you look at Luther and Calvin, just as the major ones, you can include others. Zingli was, in some ways, he predated both of them. And, and I mean, the doctrines, where he's going is similar. They denied the sacraments. That's to a man. Um, they denied the unity of the faith. That's to a man. And generally speaking, you can say that they elevated faith and scripture above everything else. And in doing that, what they did was isolate the individual, elevate the individual and his faith above everything else. That's why the church continues to fragment, the, Pro the Protestant church right, continues to break down. Because if faith is your frame of reference and it loses its, its contact with the paradigm and the human order, then you have no basis in which to bring reason and faith together. So when you elevate faith and make it sola fidea, um, the great reformers all hated the body. Calvin especially. There was a deep dis disgust. One of the central tenets of the Protestant Reformation was that man's depraved, and we've gone over this countless times. One of the fundamental differences between Catholic and Protestant is the belief that man's depraved. He's, he's, he's depraved in essence. In essence. <clears throat> and the only way he can come out of it is through grace. So in this, in this, so if you just start with those basic differences, those are basic between the two faiths. They're pretty fundamental. If you start with just those, it seems to me you, it, there's a number of things that, at least from my mind, and th by the way, this is not, this is not the approach that I want to take dealing with Tolkien. It, it's it's secondary because that's a catechetical. My first response is to try to understand this book in its own terms. But it's interesting to ask that question because I think there is something Catholic to it in a number of ways. Um, Suzanne touched on a couple of them, Boethius. That's, that's a fundamental distinction. The Protestant believes there is an inherent depravity. Boethius doesn't. There is, there is no bad fortune. There's no depravity. God is always working to bring something good out of things um, the Protestant believes the world is depraved. That's not me, that's, that's Calvin and Luther. They both believe that reason was flawed, corrupted, but only by faith. I've got, well, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll send passages, Sue, if you're, if you're questioning those, but those are fundamental distinctions. A couple of interesting things emerge in the story. Um, this isn't Hemingway dealing with Santiago. It's not Ivan in Russia. It is a fellowship of men who are bound together in a fellowship. In that sense, it's almost Catholic just in the way, in its broadness. I mean, what Suzanne was describing. <clears throat> if, you, if you take, Hemingway is, by the way, not a Protestant. He converted to Catholicism. And, but, but I think he's a reflection of modern America and the tendency of modern America is to make the, the self, the individual self, more important than anything else. That's, that's a basic characteristic of America. It's our, our culture. If you, if you hold the fellowship against that culturally, you see you can't help but be aware of a remarkable difference. In the fellowship, we get into the psyche of everybody. We know Sam from the inside. We know Galadria. Galadria, the struggles that she goes through, Gandalf. The whole variety, the whole cast of humans, Pippin and Mary, the hobbits. There isn't anybody that he looks at that we don't into whose psyche we enter into. We go into everybody. It's a very Catholic world in a small case sense. And it's not just the creatures, it's the world itself. Everything speaks. Nature speaks. 
Nature's not depraved in this story. There isn't a sense of depravity. Um, here's where I, I would just raise a question for Mark, and, it's, and Mark, I'm not disagreeing with you because I think it's a really accurate description of the book. There's nothing about that that's ostensibly religious. But, but it, on the other hand, you can't read this book without being aware that there are degrees of holiness and evil that everybody has to contend with, and he, Tolkien renders them. The, the norm here is not respectability. We're not in the Protestant South, in fundamentalist, or in England, in a respectable England. The church, did, the, church, the, the church accommodated to a political world when it moved with Henry. One of the fundamental tenets of the church is the, um, the unity of the church, the, the, um, how to call it, the purity of the church cannot be political, it cannot be racial, cannot be sexual, it has to be universal. What the Protestant church did in, in, in accommodated handy is move into the direction of a political world. It accommodated, that's been one of its characteristic sense. So that, so that when it gave up the sacraments, this is true of Calvin, Zwingli, Luther, when it gave up the sacraments, it tended to make a moral code more important than them. And that moral code would be determined by the individual psyche. That's why it continues to break down. In this story, there's no way to read it without being aware that evil is profound in its hold on people. One of the interesting things about Tom Bombadil for me is he's, he's an instance of somebody who can put on the ring and not be affected by it. As if there's something natural that's the present, even though we don't see it in any of the characters in, in what Jackson gave us. But there's a degree of evil and a degree of holiness you will not, you, we can't find in Hemingway, you can't find it in Faulkner. I'm not aware of Protestant writers. It's a degree of evil that, that I don't know how to put this, that implies its corollary in holiness. So when, when Gandalf fights the Belzog, or what's it called? The Belrog? Belrog. Belrog? Belrog. Belrog. Remember in that scene where he fights it, and, and, and or, um, um, Gandalf's description of it, this is one of the ancient ones. I'm not sure how you guys are reading it, but it seems to me he, he goes back to something demonic in the angels in the fall. He is overpowering. And he brings Gandalf down with this terror down into the deeps of something like an infernal place. So that's a degree of evil that, that we get refractions of in evil everywhere in the story. But that's certainly in the, what do you call the, the, the guys on the, the, the black wing creatures, the Nazgul. the Nazguls. I mean, the Nazguls are, you know, the way Suzanne described them, that they, they're soulless or bodiless. They've got, they've got hoods, but they image this horrible degree of evil and its power for harm. The corollary of that is Gandalf. And here's where I'm just I'm not arguing with you, Mark, but I'm putting out a, you know, a, just a thought. Um, after Gandalf appears to have died, he's resurrected. And when, he's come, when he comes back, he comes back as the white wizard, and there's this effulgence, this light beaming from him from his death. And it's in the body. 
So there's a, there's a degree of holiness that runs through. We get glimpses of it in the fairy world, in the, the, the power associated with them. Men are weakened by it, both sides, evil and you know, good. They try to do good but fail often. But Anyway, the backstory, the back cast of so much is mythic. There are depths of evil and depths of goodness that we don't find in other works. And it's not to say they aren't in Protestant literature. I'm, I'm not aware of anybody who goes, I mean, I, I've read the 19th century Protestant writers, I mean, most of them, you know, that um, you'll not get in close to this because of that accommodation to the political world. Um, so there's a number of things, but it, it's, mostly, it's mostly in those subtle things, the mythic dimensions, the interior, the, the exterior, the music, the events, the horror of evil, the, the goodness of men, um, but most of all, the, the sort of uni universality of this and the, and the goodness, the inherent goodness that people start with and the importance of the body. Um, the two elves who make, who see mortality as a gift, they don't look at it as um, something to be disgusted with or shunned or put down. They both choose mortality in the body. Um, so none of those go directly to the structure of the Catholic Church. None of them. You could say they're Christian. But there's a color to all of that um, and a way that in some ways it seems to me express something far more broadly Catholic. It's closer to the belief in a wounded nature. You know, the Catholics believe that we were wounded by the fall, not depraved. It's just closer to those fundamental things, but it gets worked out more subtly. And all of this is terribly subtle. And I don't think any of us can land on a black-white, you know, this is the last answer on it because it's far too subtle. But it seems to me there are things there. They, they reflect a Catholic sensibility. Um, and, and not in any overt or explicit way. It's just very, very subtle. The love of stories, the great love of stories, the heroism in man. These are not people or creatures who have been saved by grace. They have not been saved by grace. The, the, the depravity that men, the Protestant claims men were left with is not evident. These are creatures from all sorts of worlds, elfish, dwarvish, human. They're not saved by grace. There's this natural goodness, even, even if it's so often undone by man's weakness, I thought Barbara's point went, or point went right to the point that there's this goodness worth fighting for. Um, it's all in a naturalistic world. It's not in a, it's not in a world defined by depravity or grace. So, those are some of the things that I would suggest, and I and I don't want to press them because to me they're just too subtle. This is not a dogmatic work. It's a it's a work of adventure. You have. The most important thing I think to take from this story, and I don't know if this is going to seem too wild, is there's a great joy in watching these people struggle with this quest, and they're all involved. It's not a private affair at all. They are all deeply attached. So, so that I think I gave this example. So even when Pippin, towards the end of the Two Towers, when he tricks Treebeard into turning around. There's this goodness at work everywhere, 
there's this, it's, it's so close to Boethius, there is this great goodness everywhere and this love of things that's worth fighting for. And they're not having to overcome a depravity in themselves. They're having to overcome a weakness, for sure, all of them. But there's a, a spirit of joy, a spirit of hope. There's a spirit of color, of depths, of, of myth, of distances, of depths, you know, all those sorts of things. Anyway, that's, those are some of my responses to that question. Um, anybody want to pick it up or feel free to, any of you? Okay, in a short time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure we end. What's your response to Gollum and his importance in the story? What is Gollum... If, you, if we see the Frodo-Sam quest as the central one, that everything that happens goes on around this quest. It's central. That ring has to be destroyed. Gollum wants it more than anything. They have to take him. They, they, won't, get back, they won't get to Mount Doom without him. So what do you make of Gollum? Who is he? Why is he important? Um... And, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking this sort of series, what are your feelings about him as you, you know, as you go through the two towers? Because he has a, he has a big role in everything that happened. Debbie, go ahead. Um, you know, my, my sense of him first is that there is this huge conflict of, of good and evil in him. I mean, when he's having the dialogue with himself... And, and he says, oh, all I have to do is tell him to go away, the evil one. And he does. And yet, it, it's, it's such a manifestation of how it just keeps encroaching. Because for a while, he's good. And then um, here comes the doubt. Because he thinks that Frodo has betrayed him. And so it's okay. And I think that we as human beings... That happens to us all the time. It's is you know we're we're fighting always with you know sin. Don't sin. I just ate a bowl of popcorn. I probably shouldn't have. But I did it. I've been enjoying it. I've been and wondering why you haven't offered some to the rest of us, Debbie Boyle. Popcorn and drinking wine. Come on. So so uh, you know I think that he was such a glaring um, model of what we humans go through every day. I think. God. Um, is that there is good and evil in both of us, in, in each one of us, and that it is a constant fight. And sometimes the good wins. Hopefully, it wins more often than the bad. But there's, there's still, we, we still have to be prepared for the battle yeah. because yeah. it's going to come. And, um, you, and the, the temptations are all around us. Um, and his temptation is, is the ring, his precious. Um, that's his temptation is, I want this, I want this, I want this. And how many of us are, I want this, I want this, I want this. So, yeah, that, um, that means a million things around us are rings. Let me ask, because I, 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 I couldn't agree more, Debbie, with what, but I want to be careful because I want to leave as much time as I can. Can I just ask you and anybody else who wants to jump in, what were your feelings, if I can get to a gut, because I think your explanation of him is really good, but what were your feelings towards him? In all of those scenes, when we go back to the three of them as they're struggling to do what they do, 
What were your emotional responses? You know, what was very interesting, if you watch the eye, I mean, whoever did the graphics on this was brilliant. Um, because if you yep. watch his eyes, you can tell when the good is coming through and when the evil is coming through. I mean, it's so obvious what is going on in his mind at the time. He doesn't even have to say anything. You can see it on his face. It's sort of a... It's a visceral reaction. Debbie, I'm going to press you, sir. Give me your feelings. What were your feelings as you watched these scenes with Frodo? I'm trying to, I just, I, I want to ask it of anybody else too, but, but since you went, can, what were your feelings? Can you recall them? Well, um, I, I mean, when, when Frodo was trying to get him to come with him, um, it, it, you can almost tell that there was something, you know, uh, that he was that that he was being enticed by Frodo because Frodo was saying, "Oh, just come." Oh, oh just come. in the scene when he's trying to protect him from the archers. Well, but yes, when he was in the water. Yeah, yeah, water, right, right. Um, I mean, you know, and it was like, oh, if I had been, and I never can remember the guy's name, the the Fairmere. No, 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 so, not Frodo, but the, um, what he called him, he said, this is what your name was. Selim? Smeagol? Smeagol? Anyway, half the time I don't remember what their names are. But, <laughs> um, you know, when, when he was trying to get him to come, and he said, trust me, trust me, trust me. Um, and I'm thinking, um, I'm not so sure that I would have trusted Frodo. Yeah, I really but, didn't right. have. And yet he did, and that was where it was sort of, it, it broke his his trust of Frodo. Yeah, well, I, to me, his trust was compromised all along. It was a social, you know, master, master did this for me, I'll do. But anyway, Sue, you go ahead. What, can you answer that, what your feelings for well, him? What I was thinking of was that that was me. That's me boy, as I boy. struggle every day. Yeah. With doing right, with doing wrong, with with should I do this? Should I not? Should I? You know, all of those struggles that I have on a daily basis. Yeah, that okay. was to me. I was Gollum. I I can get sidetracked is the best word, but it's not adequate on a quest for something, and it isn't where I should be looking. It isn't what is important. It isn't what is right. And so I struggle with that all the time. Sorry, go back. I, Sorry, I didn't say that again. I'm not... I, I, okay, I, I struggle all the time with what is right to do, what is not right to do, what yeah. is the best thing to do. I, I, I struggle with that. All the time, daily, more than daily, yeah. several times a day. And I identified in some ways with Gollum because I can I can get fixated on a particular goal or a particular thing. I don't like that I identified with him. I don't like that in myself, but I can see it in myself. And You're in good company, Sue. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and what I felt at the end was, oh, God, I hope he, and I've seen the movie, so I know, but I hope he kind of comes back to the right path. Boy. <laughs> but, 
but I struggle with this on a daily basis yeah. on so many different levels. Maybe not life and death, but but, but a ring, so many a ring anyway. Levels. So we're almost. Give, can you give me your feel? I mean, you've almost done it. Maybe, maybe I'm asking. For, can you can you describe your feelings at any of that? I mean, you, I think maybe you have. I'm not sure. You're I was at, empathetic with yeah, Gal with yeah. the struggles that he had because I face those a lot. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like there are so many opportunities I have to do the right thing, but it's not always the easy thing, and there are things like the written for him that are goals for me or things I might want or yep. things I might do that I'd like to do that would be, I don't know, easier, more pleasurable, <laughs> more whatever. And I have to fight with myself daily <laughs> to not do those. And so I, there was an empathy with, with Gollum. There was a, yeah. a thing that Frodo understood him more than Sam did. Um, but there's a danger there. Yep. There's a real, real live danger there. Yeah. In terms of following those feelings, and so I, I, I guess I understood it, but I didn't want to be him. Yeah. Just, just so you know, it, whatever our doctrinal differences might be, you and I couldn't be closer together right now. I, I mean, I don't know how anybody else is going to react to this. I loved Gollum, and I sympathized with him constantly. I mean, I'm in touch. I mean, and, and I went, Frodo, or I mean, Gandalf said to Frodo, you know, he may play a part in this. And you're right, Frodo sympathizes. Sam wants to kill him. It's only because Frodo trusts him to make a place. I, 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 I think he's damned at the end. I mean, going into the fire will end it. But I just find it impossible for me to watch him and not feel my heart break. Because when I watch him, I watch myself failing, struggling, for anybody to minimize evil, I'm not, I'm not Protestant, you know that, and I, so I don't believe we're depraved, but, but I believe concupiscence goes as deep as you can go into evil because it overwhelms you, and Gollum to me is the perfect expression. He, he will not give that up, and, and interesting, the ring will not give him up. I mean, there's this attraction, this power that things have, and I don't think it's, and I think what goes on with Gollum is reflected in everybody in the story, with Frodo with Sam, with Baromir, with Fear, the kings. He's an image of what is inside that we get glimpses of from people's gestures or their actions or their decisions. But the image of it is Gollum. So when I watch now, that... You, sir, go ahead. I want to say to you about that as the only Protestant in this group, um, I'm going to say I don't feel depraved. I feel wounded. And I think Gollum is wounded. And I think... Yeah. His struggles are the struggles that we all have, whether Catholic or most Protestants. Not all, I agree. Not the fundamentalists, not the the prosperity gospel folks. Not you know, a several people, but but the true Protestants that care about themselves and paradise and God and Christ's sacrifice and all of that. I I feel with Gollum that I struggle every single day yeah. against the evil parts of me or the parts that would be drawn to evil. Yeah, I do too. That's why I'm laughing because I, I, when I watch it, Suzanne, I think sometimes scowls at me because I, I, I just, 
I feel for him. I love him in some ways. The struggle, um, I couldn't agree more. He's wounded. What, what makes it worse is he was tortured. I mean, he won't let go of it, but he's tortured repeatedly. When Faramir gets him, he kicks him around, even when he says, you know, takes him by the neck and says, you do it. So, and Frodo at one point pulls out his sword, says, I'm going to kill you if you do this. So Frodo knows he, he has to trust him, but Frodo can't be innocent about him either. So, but I, I, just, I don't know of a figure in literature, Iago doesn't get it because Iago's pure evil, I've never seen a figure who so exemplifies the, the grotesque, you know, we've been talking about grotesque comedy, the grotesque image of that point at which grace or goodness and evil meet. All of his gestures, I mean, the, the, the soup, I mean, or uh, Debbie hit it, you know, when behind the tree when one part of him comes out or another part comes out or any, he is so, he's an image of how constant the battle between good and evil is. And for me, I found it hard not to sympathize with him because it's on, if you don't know where the story's going, it seems to me one of the elements of suspense is wondering, will he make it? How will he come out at the end? Because he's so tormented. He's so tortured. Anyway, I'd call the, that whole center plot with Gollum the pathos because nothing happens that isn't intensified by his suffering. Uh, and he has no control over it. The ring has got him. He's trying to trust in Frodo. Um, when Frodo tries to... I, I, I was a little bit angry at Sam when they leave after Fairmer tosses him out. And Sam says, Sam should have said, the archers had their arrows, but they were going to kill you. Frodo had to do that to protect you. He didn't. You know, so Gollum's allowed to hold on to this sense of being betrayed. It, it, Tolkien has such a sense of how how wounded human beings are, all, all human beings, all of us, how susceptible we are to things, um, that there's this great nobility or goodness in man struggling with these terrible weaknesses. And so much of it's imaging in him. Sorry, what? Yeah. Anybody else on Gollum? Fred, you have a thought or a mark? You got anybody else? We, we, we're out of time, but I'd love to hear... Mark, you have any thoughts, or Fred, you've got any thoughts about Gollum, or or you, or what I'm really interested in is your response. You know where your heart or mind was on him. Real quick, I saw Gollum as addiction. When you see somebody who just can't give something up. Yep, yep. Um, and another part of it is you kind of feel sorry for him, but at the end of the day, he's had a long time to make a lot of good or bad choices, so he got what he deserved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you kind of feel sorry for him, but hey, you had your shot. Mark, let me ask this before I go to Fred, because it's a serious one. I couldn't agree with you. It's hard, it's hard to look at him and not feel the power of an addiction. You can't let go. But, I'm, but I'm, I think I'm standing with Sue a little bit more in this, and it may just, I may be making more of a confession of my own sins here. Than, but it's, my own sense is that most of us carry sins to our death. Um, I, I go to confession regularly. I don't stop going to confessions because I've stopped sinning. I go to confession um, because, as Sue said, or certainly the way I, I, I struggle with sins, or I wouldn't go to confession. But I would not describe those sins going to confession the way the world was. 
I would say sin itself is a form of addiction. It may not be intense so that it takes over your whole life, but, um, but it seems to me confession has the place it does in our church because it's, it's recognizing the need for forgiveness all along. And Barron has said this, I think, very clearly and, and I, with all the evidence on his side. He's got this wonderful example of saints who, um, I don't remember who the one he took it from, but he said, the saint's description of sin was like marks on a glass. The closer you got to the light, the more those marks showed. So the closer you get to Christ, the more aware you become of your own sins. So it's not like you've erased them all. Um, and, it, it, and it doesn't mean to give in to them. That's not what Barron's saying. What he is saying is he's recognizing the need for absolution all along our life because we struggle with sins and we'll struggle until the day we die. So I wouldn't, I'd, I'd say that Gollum has the, you know, his actions have the character of an addiction, but I want to be careful because I'd say part of what the ring symbolizes is the sinfulness that, and it's there, it has a hold, and, and it's only at the end that he can give it up. And what's really interesting to me is that Frodo, who's had this quest, could not give it up. Tolkien's really clear in that. So you've got to say of Tolkien, or I mean of Frodo, however good he is, I, see, I wouldn't use the word addiction then, I'd say it's a sin. The only, the only reason that's, that sin goes into the fire is because Gollum bites his finger off because Frodo at that point will not give it up. I, th I think it's an image of how powerful sin is in the human soul. Ask Fred. Hmm? Can, Fred, do you have any, what, what's your response to Gollum's role in all of this? Well, I, I, I guess that's one of the places where I saw a bit of the Catholic sacraments because when Boromir died and Aragon was with him, um, that moment where he realized that he had given in and, and, and was sorry for that was, you know, to me, uh, and, and, and Francis and I were just talking about it earlier, there was, there was almost a sign of the cross there from Aragon's <laughs> yeah. part where he touched his yep. head yep. Yep. And, and he touched his mouth. And, and then you look at Golem, and to me, that's that's what can happen to you without some kind of reconciliation in your in your life, because basically, you know, the sin of 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 the desire, and I'm with Sue on this. The sin of the desire just built up and built up and built up to the point where there was just no way for him to come back in the end which was, was, was a sorrowful moment, but even when he fell in the fire, oh, never mind. I'm sorry. That's the third story. We'll, oh, we'll, we'll come back to that. But <clears throat> Gollum has one last chance to reconcile and he chooses not to. So I'm with you. I think in the end he was, he was damned. Yeah. Ormer, on the other hand, I think in the end was not. And so to me, that's where, there's a Catholicism. That's just one of the points in the story where I see a little bit of Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's Catholic, yeah, you know, belief. I'm yeah, I'm that's that's. I mean, there's a lot of really good discussion, and that's really about yeah. the only thing I can add, really. Yeah, 
I'm really glad you took us back there because for me that was one of, I thought that was the climax of the first story. Um, Bermer's dying, his coming to the rescue of the of um, Marion Pippin, and standing off those orcs and and fighting heroically, um, and and being crushed, and admitting it. Um, I mean, he's one of the great warriors to me in the whole of the trilogy. Just a, um, but he but he carried a wound and he acknowledged it at the end. He asked for forgiveness and we're not in a world of grace or. Christ saves you, or that's, this is a natural man, a man of honor, who is humiliated by his own, by arriving at that point where he's humiliated by his own weakness and acknowledges it. The humility of that moment to me was extraordinary. And what made it so much more touching for me is when Aragon bent down to, to kiss him on the forehead, you know, just... Um, at the point of crying himself, because he's so admired, you know, I think he said, rest, you know, rest in peace, I can't remember his words, but I, for me it was a powerful scene, and I think largely because it involved his confession. He, he just, he was so aware of his pride, and um, his giving into it. To me it was a tremendous moment, extraordinary moment. Anybody else before we leave? Tracy, your feelings about Gollum? Like disgust and tenderness all at the same time. You <laughs> know, you back and forth. Oh, right. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, um, let's, can we do this? Can we, um, let's extend this. Let's take part of the next week to, to give a little bit more time to two towers, whatever time we need to get out, whatever anybody wants to talk about. Um, and then we'll spend the rest of the time um, on uh, Return of the King. But let's plan to take half the time next week for Two Towers and then part of the time for Return of the King and the following week Return of the King. I would suggest all of you get a copy of Chesterton's Orthodoxy. We'll do that next. Um, um, Ignatius has a good print but it includes other works. Um, there's a collection at Ignatius called The Thing, um, which is Chesterton's collection on his works um, of conversion. It's a wonderful collection. If you know anything about Chesterton, you know what a great heart he has and how witty he is and what a good, just a good sense of humor and the value of ordinary things. He's just a, anyway, there's a collection called The I think called The Thing. It's his works on conversion. It's It's touching. Um, you can get Orthodoxy. Ignatius has published everything. Or you can just go online and, and get a copy of Orthodoxy. I, I don't know what it'll cost. But we'll go chapter by chapter, so I'm not going to be concerned about pay. We don't all have to have the same edition. So get whatever you want, whatever's cheapest, or, you know, if you want to read some other of his, of his works. His work on St. Francis, his work on St. Thomas, Everlasting Man, to me, are... It's Chesterton at his best. I mean, you, 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 you'll read one of the best minds of the 20th century when you read him. And he writes as a journalist. He's not an intellectual. He's, he's writing to ordinary people, so he's easy to read. Doc? Yeah? It's Memorial Day next Monday. So I don't know if anybody's going to be here. I will be in Louisville, so I won't be at the next class. Just want to let you know. You guys want to cancel next? Let's do that, because it's... Let's put it off for... That's up to you. I'm not... 
Well, let's do it because some people will maybe have bit even even if some people aren't. Let's put it off so that um, in, so anybody who's pressed won't feel pressed. You can. <clears throat> we'll meet the following week and, and finish two towers. Okay. All of you guys have a good weekend, Labor Day weekend, and Memorial. or Memorial Day. Um, you already know that I don't live in time. Um, um, I live in a cave. Um, pray, pray for Suzanne, please. Um, all of you have a good week, a good couple of weeks, and we'll see each other in a couple of weeks. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Thank, thank you all. Good night, y'all.